Welcome to Guest Getter, the best place for restaurateurs to learn the art and science of getting more new guests, getting guests coming back more often, and getting guests spending more per visit so that you can be more profitable and do more of what you love. My name's Kyle Guilfoyle. Let's hit it. Today, we're super lucky to be joined by restaurateur and pro poker player, Kalen Big Wheel McNeil. Kalen brings a unique perspective on growing both a single location concept, an elevated Italian restaurant in Victoria, Canada called Zambri's, and a franchise burger joint, Big Wheel Burger, located in British Columbia. We'll be diving into the pros and cons of franchising versus not franchising, the business lessons he's learned while winning almost three quarters of a million dollars at the poker table, what he would do if you were starting from scratch, and of course, the guest getting, aka restaurant marketing insights he's learned along the way. Kalen, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm, I'm super excited for this. Um, so I always start these podcasts by asking uh, what you think or what how would how you would describe your particular area of expertise, your your zone of genius, if you will. Um, I think my biggest um, sort of asset, if I was to frame it as as genius, I would say just my ability to um, navigate and flow with different changing circumstances. So uh, I tend to be easily um, put off my position if there's a reasonable counterpoint to it. So as much as I am the leader of our organization, I take a lot of input from our staff or our other managers and um, our suppliers and customers and sort of integrate a holistic approach in my style so that I really listen and get feedback. And the, you know, I let the, the playing field navigate in front of me. So sometimes the best decision is just not making a decision and just waiting to see how the landscape plays out. Um, obviously, in depending on what the time is, COVID is a very particular acute you know, immediate quick reactions are rewarded. Whereas in business in general, uh, a, a slower sort of more steadied approach is is usually best. Um, try not to be too reactionary um, and, you know, dealing with immediate problems quickly. But um, longer term strategy for me is just letting the, you know, the landscape play out and then, you know, adjusting my decision. Um, one of the things that um, I would say would is my, you know, kind of white magic of, of what I do is I really take decision making seriously. And I, you know, when you make decisions in business, it's not, um, uh, uh, there's a term in, in gaming that is, um, uh, the term's escaping me right now, but um, it's not zero sum. So there isn't a winner and a loser. Mm -hmm. So there, the, the magic is in the gray and, and making decisions that um, work best in changing environments. So um, I think that's where a lot of people get tied into their decision-making thinking it's all or nothing, mm -hmm. but there's certain decisions that you can make that have a 70% chance of succeeding or 60% chance of succeeding or a 25% chance of succeeding. And then you're going to measure your risk based on that analysis. So I do a lot of uh, that thought process in so like saying pro probability weighted decision. Yeah, yeah. Probability weighted. So, you know, you know, doing a range of outcomes based on certain decisions and then what's the likelihood of their outcome. And that to me has been the really successful model because it allows us to try, you know, what would be perceived as risky things, but you're ready to pivot um, quickly 
um, away from that, but you're also willing to accept that, you know, some decisions are going to have a 25% success where others are going to be more closer to 90% success. Totally. Uh, and it, it sounds like you're, you're probably an ideal guy to have around, uh, during these times. Um, you know, it strikes me that having, um, you know, being equipped with that, that zone of genius, if you will, maybe you, you, I imagine you had to overcome something or there was like, you know, a few obstacles that taught you that that was your sort of zone of genius. I'm wondering if that's true. And if it is, if you could take us to, you know, um, one of the one or, or any of those obstacles. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And it's a question that's not asked enough to um, business people. Um, I think it really comes down to people celebrate their successes, but don't do a proper analysis on their failures. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, you know, being good at something and being successful, uh, there's, there's not a lot to be learned from that because you're, you're, there's no lessons, but when you're, when you're not successful, that's where all of life lessons. Um, I think most people would agree with that statement, but for me, it was, I had an import business and I was doing importing products from Asia and selling to uh, home Depot, Walmart, Costco, and they treated the, their vendors, um, in my experience, poorly just because they gave you limited amount of information. They expected you to take all the risks. And that business taught me a lot. Um, and in the import business, you're also dealing with currency fluctuations. So there's a lot of things that you you need to do, need to learn. And back then, I wasn't doing my risk assessment correctly. So I was taking an ex extraordinary amount of risks for very little reward. Um, so I wasn't pricing the product correctly or whatever. And there created a very stressful work environment that um, I assumed a ton of risk. So what I learned from those experiences, and there's been other ones less, there fewer and far between now, um, but you know that's the benefit of having gone through those experiences. Um, but I definitely learned, you know, a risk assessment and then what is worth doing, what's not worth doing. So, and the short-term benefit of of certain opportunities aren't worth it um, because the long-term pain of um, you know not pricing your product correctly or having returns come back or not getting paid from these big box stores, um, and that's a very specific environment or, or experience with that um, business, but. I think what it taught me is just to really evaluate, you know, how much time you're spending on, on what you're doing, what is your return going to be? And then what, what's the real risk? So there's relative risk and real risk. So it's easy to sort of evaluate what the relative risk is because you're making assumptions based on information. But as that information changes, it's really important to kind of entertain and evaluate what the actual risk is like. So if this happens, what, what does that mean? So if the bank, if you can't make your payroll or if you can't um, get the equipment in on time, um, but you have to sell it and the customer's waiting for it, what is the risk of you not, you know, completing that order? Like, are they going to kick you out? Are they going to not going to pay you? Are they going to deduct money from your invoice? Um, and then just figuring out if it's worth even doing. So sometimes the better answer is no, and and not and then the other times they're they're you know taking a little bit of extra risk can actually really grow your business too so it's really important to evaluate um, risk assessment and doing it practically um, and not with the you know blue sky approach where you're actually critically looking at your risk and I think in business people don't look at the risk um, they don't evaluate it correctly and they don't um, weight it 
weight it in a way that will protect themselves if things go wrong. You always want to give yourself an out. You always want to give yourself something that you can just kind of pivot and then not have the worst scenario because you're going to start getting information and feedback from your decisions. And if you're listening to it, you'll be like, okay, now my risk went from, you know, 25% risk to 60% risk. And now I need to, you know, change what I'm, my decision-making process or just change the decision altogether. All so Totally. It, it, um, it, I'm, I'm reading the book, uh, how to stop worrying and start living uh, by mm. Dale Carnegie. And it, um, it reminds me of a, a couple of things. One is to, uh, to put a stop loss on your worries. So, um, that's you know, exactly it. Yeah. Yes. So really know how much you are willing to lose, uh, in any given yeah. situation. And, um, the, the other thing it, it recommends, well, it recommends a number of things, but uh, the other, the one that stands out to me is to, um, to be crystal clear on what the worst case scenario is and then just accept it and come to terms with it, which is, which is a little bit different from what you're saying, which, what you're talking about is I think far more uh, sophisticated, which um, it, it actually, I want to know if you happen to have any resources or, or where you'd, I, I don't know, maybe it's just something you get from experience, but is there a place where you'd recommend people go to learn how to, you know, do probability weighted decision making or like risk assessment or anything like that? Well, I've gotten most of my risk assessment experience from business, but also from gaming and game theory. Mm -hmm. So I think game theory has really um, taught me not to be attached to the results of your decision. Mm -hmm. So, or the outcome, I guess. So when you make a decision and you've evaluated all the risks and you've evaluated the opportunity, you've made your decision, your job's kind of done there. So you got the measure and monitor of of the results of that, but the outcome is out of your control. So imagine you've got 10 pieces of of information you're taking in um, and you make your decision. You can't control what the end result will be and the outcome and, and ultimately becoming detached from that. So you've evaluated all the information to use all your best um, knowledge at the time with the information you had. Um, and that's why you made that decision. A lot of people beat themselves up mm-hmm. and get really emotionally attached to the outcome. So the varying degrees of success in that outcome, there's a ton of factors that you can control, but there's a whole bunch that you can't control. Mm-hmm. And what end up people end up doing is they end up focusing on what they can't control, which is, you know, uh, you know, thankless time spent and worrying and it's got nothing to do with it. Just, you know, try to try to mitigate the damages if you're seeing it going a certain way. But, you know, once you've made your decision and you you feel confident in that, then just be happy with whatever the outcome is. Um, As far as resources that, you know, I think game theory is a big one. Um, I think a lot of books like uh, Malcolm Gladwell and, you know, there's some good um, psychologist um, books that you can read that just talk about um, how you perceive certain certain inputs, like certain relationships you have and um, certain, and it could be your employee, it could be your partner, business partner, it could be your life partner, um, and just how to, how to deal and, and really process certain things. Uh, I think getting smart on your data analysis mm-hmm. is, is key. Um, so you're not taking for granted that, you know, everything about the subject you're in, um, really looking for a, a broad base of knowledge. And I think the psychological um, component of it is really important for me because 
you know, a lot of the times in, in my business, I'm, I'm relying on other people to, to execute. Mm -hmm. So knowing what motivates them, um, knowing, you know, what demotivates them. Um, and then also how are they going to react with their teams and just trying to apply the best strategy for coaching them. So I've really moved to a coaching, um, you know, business model as far as management style. Um, you, you let your managers do their job. You don't micromanage them, but you coach them along the way and recognize that the mistakes they make are actually really good learning opportunities. So I think some managers can come down on people and then you create this sort of toxic, you know, oh, I've got to do with what they've said or whatever, which really limits their, their um, flexibility and freedom and their productivity. Because I think people get a lot of enjoyment out of having control of their own job. Mm -hmm. um, I had an experience when I was a manager at Canadian Springs Water Company years and years ago. And my, my manager would come in and sweep my warehouse. And I was just like, okay, if you don't want me, I'm in charge of the warehouse. I, if, I, if you don't think I'm sweeping it, then come and tell me you want it swept. Don't come in and do it for me. Yeah. And that was a really pivotal life lesson for me because I, I kind of went in and told him that I am prepared to quit if you do that again. So if you want something, just come and talk to me. Don't come behind me and micromanage me on it. Yeah. Um, and okay. I think that sort of is a, is a key part. But uh, I would lean more on the psychological components than you know, the, a lot of people get tied up in, in the actual practical business knowledge of it, but it's, that's a hard skill. I think the soft skills is where the development really, where you really can flourish is in a lot of those softer skills. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, one of the things you said that really stuck out to me is, is just also looking at the data and, you know, I think just collecting the data, because I think that there's something, um, calming about it almost you you just look at the data and it, it it that's all it is right it's just numbers and then from there 100%. you can you can make those decisions as opposed to you know being tied up in the the emotionality of you know your decision making and being tied to the outcome like you said so i i really i love that and uh you have a obviously a, a very rich uh background uh you know you have the the import export business you have some uh ex like quite a bit of experience at the poker table, which I, I can't wait to get into. And, you know, obviously your, your, uh, restaurant, um, journey, I'm, I'd love to, I'd love to give a bit more context. I'm wondering, would you be able to just give us the Coles notes version of, let's say your, your business journey. And that might be a big ask, but I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. No, I, yeah, I, I, I can and will for sure. Um, I think, I, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. He owned a, um, a logging company that got to be fairly big. Uh, he opened a industrial auto supply store that I worked at when I was 15. Um, and at the same time, I was also doing dances. So I would rent a hall, um, get tickets, hire a DJ. Um, back then, I think we were doing it at $7 a ticket for a teenage dance. And I made a fair amount of money doing that. But that was you know, prevented, you know, I worked at my dad's shop part time, and then I ran these dances, and that's all I needed to do. But that was my first kind of breaking my teeth in business. Um, my dad, unfortunately, um, lost a bunch of money in that business. So I also saw that. And um, it didn't deter me from getting into business, but it was a good life lesson of not everything is roses. And, you know, sometimes things don't work and turn out. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that for me, if, if he would have been, if it didn't happen, my journey might be a little bit different. But from there, I went to um, 
uh, Camosun College and uh, and took a you know a two year international business course. I had traveled to Japan to train karate. Um, prior to that. So I had a, a, a keen interest in international business and dealing with Asia. So that was sort of the focus I had started on. Um, and while I was in college, I started working at Canadian Springs Water Company, which um, led me to my first international business, which was importing bottled water coolers from uh, Korea. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started getting into the, re- the wholesale business of bottled water coolers to Home Depot, London Drugs, Safeway, Costco. So that was my first um, adult business venture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like a like world of lessons learned there. I was way in over my head. I was competing with companies like, you know, um, GE and Sunbeam and these big importers. And I was trying to, I had a lot of knowledge in the water business because I'd worked in it for a few years, but um, it was, yeah, it was a tough business and just the whole monetary thing. And I ended up, um, expanding into England and doing the same thing in England. Um, and I remember being over there and I was, I had a flu and I was supposed to be there for another month. And I just looked in the mirror and said, what am I doing? Like, I'm struggling, barely making any money. I'm taking all this risk. And that's, again, where you look at the risk assessment. And I was like, what am I thinking? So I literally canceled my meeting that day. I booked a flight home. And within six months, I'd sold the business. Luckily, I had enough um, uh, interest. So I was able to get out of it without losing money, uh, making a small profit. Uh, but that was um, what kind of maybe just rethink what I'm doing and really understanding what risk is um, and also the quality of life and how much stress I want to have for, for my day-to-day living. I'm curious, how long had you been at that business? I was at that business for about five years from beginning to end. So I think we started in 1999 um, and I worked up for the water company up until the time I started that business. Um, And then I was out of it by 2004, at which time, you know, we started Zambri's restaurant um, with my wife at the time, Joe Zambri and her brother, Peter Zambri. So I was doing the import business and they were running the restaurant day to day. I did the back office sort of business end of the restaurant, but it's pretty simple business. We only had a small 30 seat restaurant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came back, uh, I kind of was a little bit burnt out. I had to clean up some, some stuff from the old company. I had a bunch of old water coolers that had been returned from Home Depot that I needed to sell and all this type of thing. So I, I kind of was doing that for a couple of years and just kind of working a little bit in the restaurant Um, But we ended up buying a uh, commercial building downtown and our idea was we were going to move Zambri's into it. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did a heritage restoration. So I actually for a year actually was working physically, you know, doing the restoration with, um, you know, some contractors and we had a partner in the building. So I did that. Um, And then probably in 2008 is when I really got back into the business end of it, or sorry, the restaurant end of it. Um, I had this idea to, my nickname was Big Wheel and I was uh, traveling a lot to the States um, to playing poker. So, so, sorry, sorry, what, why was your nickname Big Wheel? Uh, because I played soccer with these group. We had this um, Sunday league, it's called the Sunday Premier League. Mm-hmm. And it's just a bunch of old guys, you know, that used to play mm-hmm. soccer when they were kids. Mm-hmm. So there were, and there, a lot of restaurant people um, were there. So we had about 30 guys that went out every Sunday and had fairly organized. We had, 
you know, um, uniforms and everything. <laughs> um, but I, I was running pretty, I was a striker. So I was running pretty, what I thought was fast and I was fairly speedy, but I tripped and I did an end over end over end. And, uh, they, somebody said the proud Mary song, big wheel, keep on rolling. And another guy said, big wheel McNeil. Ha, ha, ha. And then they just called me big wheel after that. So, um, and then, so the name came first and I having going to Vegas a lot, I saw, you know, quick service, um, better fast food starting. So I had this idea of, of doing big wheel burger mm-hmm. and uh, my partners, Joe and Peter at the time were kind of like, ah, eh, you know, maybe not. But then I met uh, Jeff from pig barbecue and, and he was our original partner in big wheel. I, so sorry. We, I have to, I have to interject here. I live in uh, Jeff's uh, apartment. Oh, do you? Oh my God, Kyle, yeah, that's he, hilarious. Jeff is my landlord. I Guess what? I used to live in that apartment. No, really? Yeah, when Joe and I first first uh, got a divorce, I that's where I lived. Oh my God, I feel like yeah. I should give you a tour. That's hilarious. I had no yeah, idea. I was there for, I guess I was probably there about a year, year and a half. Wow. Um, that was in 2011 or something. Yeah, so that's, that's, that is pretty funny. You, you must have been the first, uh, the first person who lived here. I, there was one other tenant he had, and then I was the second tenant. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, so Jeff and I were out having a beer and, you know, we're the big thinkers of things. So he was pretty gung ho to do big wheel with us. He had pig, he was going to expand pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as I mentioned that Jeff, Jeff wanted to do big wheel burger, Joe and Peter were like, yes, let's do it. And then that was how we got into, uh, into big wheel burger. So from that po- point, my earlier business experiences were, were um, my import business and then we owned a commercial building and then I was pretty much dedicated to restaurants. Um, I also have a, my brother was in the oil business. Um, He worked for a pressure testing company for natural gas Mm -hmm. and he approached me in 2013 to uh, help him get that business started up in Alberta. So I also do that with my brother um, and we've done that since 2013. So Wow, I I would I would actually love to take a step back and and just uh, dig into something a little bit. Um, you've you know obviously had a, a lot of time to think about the the import business. Um, are, could you distill why it didn't work? You I mean you mentioned you know you mentioned that you were you were up against some some, some big players, um, but I, I'm wondering if there if there's something else you'd uh, you'd be able to. Yeah, I think it, I mean, obviously, you know, the competitive landscape is a factor, a fairly Mm -hmm. big factor. Mm -hmm. Um, Also uh, financial, like having enough money to absorb the swings. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the biggest reason why it didn't work for me, is just the, the, the breadth of experience you need. You've got to wear a lot of different hats. I was doing sales role. I was doing the physical uh, sourcing of the products we were importing. I was traveling to Asia. Um, and then I also had to deal with the financial end of it, which was, um, you know, in import business, you have to pay the supplier in cash up front and then they make it and then they got to ship it. So there's a two month period between the time you've ordered it and paid for it before it arrives. Um, and then you deliver it to your customer and that customer may take 60, 90, 120 days to pay you. Mm-hmm. So there's a five month gap. Wow. So underestimating the amount of capital required was part of it. Um, and then the margins and the pressure they put on you. And then you bring in the currency 
So totally. when you're dealing with you at buying U.S. dollars in Canadian, uh, you know, when I was doing it, the Canadian dollar was the worst to the U.S. ever. And when it rebounded, prices just dropped. So I had a brief window where I was making money when the currency got stronger, but um, it didn't last very long. So you have to wear a lot of hats. And I think that was the biggest realization is just understanding where your wheelhouse is. I mean, I think I was a fantastic salesperson. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've become a, a very good business person, but at the time I wouldn't, I, I wasn't. And I think if anybody asked me, would, would I get into that business again? I think I could do it pretty well, but I do not think it's a good business to be in because it's, there's not enough margin in it and there's way too many risk factors. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much my summary of why that didn't work. And anybody, I mean, people ask me about the restaurant business too. And I to say, don't get into that either, but you know, I, I, I like the challenges, I guess. <laughs> um, well, well, I mean, why don't we just, what, what, what do you say to someone who, who wants to get into the restaurant business? Uh, I would say, you know, and I, when I, I know I said, don't get in the restaurant business, but I think if you're going to do it, you have to have a passion for it, obviously. Um, and you have to have a good partnership group. I think that one of the reasons why we've been successful is, um, we've got a triangle of, of competency. So yeah. I've, they've got a good business person and a long-term planner in myself, um, uh, Peter is uh, an amazing chef. He's the sort of creative force. And then Joe was a very um, systematic, um, you know, front, front, front of house person, but also really good trainer um, and good attention to those smaller details that, you know, are annoying and grating on you, but you realize how important they are. And I think over the years, I've really, really appreciated the partners that I've had um, mm -hmm. and the contributions that they make. And I think you really need a good team. So however you do that team, you can do it with a partner, you can do it with good um, consultants, like hiring a good accountant, hiring a good a good lawyer. I mean, I think lawyers are, are very valuable, but I think people spend too much money on the lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, you know, having a basic agreement, you know, I vet all of our own leases and do all that stuff. And I don't pay lawyers to do any of that because it's, you know, if it comes to a fight, you're going to be in fight anyway. So it doesn't really matter that much about the legal advice, but having a good team around you, I think is important. I think moving forward, especially coming out of COVID, there's going to be a lot of opportunity because it comes down again to your risk analysis. So mm -hmm. when you're looking at what space you're going to get into. So if I go into an empty space and it's in a strip mall and somebody's built a strip mall and it's just there, it's going to cost me 600000 mm -hmm. But I'm going to go into a Quiznos that is, is out of business or was a former restaurant, but it has the bathrooms and it has you know, you know, a grease trap and some fixtures in there that I can assume, then that might cost me 250,000. So, you know, your opportunity, that difference between, you know, 400,000 is a significant monthly payment that you can put in your jeans instead of, you know, the jeans of, of, of whatever, whoever, like your contractor or just in equipment. So, you know, surveying, you know, the right thing. So if you can find the right opportunity, I think you can really make it go if you have a good product. Hundred percent. And uh, if you were if you were starting from scratch today, I'm curious how you would how you would what steps you would take to build and grow a, a thriving restaurant business. Well, it's interesting you say that because there is where I am working on another concept. It's an offshoot of of Zambri's, but that's a, the process that I'm going through right now is is 
you know, detailing what product you're going to offer, what is going to be unique about it? What is your marketing angle going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and then just making sure you have good people. And I, I guess that's, you know, my approach. Like if I was to just start from scratch, I would, you know, just make sure I have a tight concept. And then also what's going to be the draw? Like what's the call to action for the customer to come and support you? Um, what's going to be unique? Um, I think a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to make a really good, you know, pizza or I'm going to make a really good product, whatever it be, or I'm going to make Cuban sandwiches because there's Cuban sandwiches aren't, aren't that, but um, there's a lot more to go into it and really understanding um, how much rev- how much money do you need to make? You know, how much revenue do you think this is going to do is going to make for you? You're going to be able to generate. So if you're selling a sandwich for $10 or a steak for $30, there's different factors there. Right. So understanding how much um, how many people you need to get in that are buying $10 sandwiches versus how many people you need to buy come in that's going to buy $30 steaks. Um, and then how much money do you need to live? And then how much investment is it going to take to do it? Most people underestimate the amount of money it's going to cost to actually start up. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, we, we took over uh, Chandler's years ago and made it the guild. Um, oh, we yeah. owned that for a couple of years before we sold it. We were, we were in a partnership group in that, but that looked like a great opportunity we all the equipment was there. We signed the a lease that was very favorable, um, mm-hmm. included all the equipment. We really only needed to spend maybe 100 to 150k to get the thing up up and running, mm-hmm. and it still failed. So um, even wow. really good opportunities um, sometimes aren't that good. But failing in a business that you've invested 150 in is different than failing in a business that you invested 600,000 in. For sure. And I, I, sorry, I, I, I don't mean to, um, like I'm not after failure porn or anything like that, but no, um, like I'm, I, I am, I'm, I was, I was a big fan of the guild and I'd be curious on your, uh, your perspective on why, why the guild, uh, didn't, didn't work. Yeah. I was a big fan of it as well. Um, I think there was a number of factors. Um, one factor is I think it's haunted. Um, <laughs> But there were some haunting stories there. Uh, it was really bizarre to me why it didn't work. Um, for us, it was a lot of uh, management issues. Like we just couldn't get a decent manager. Um, and I think, you know, the location, the actual space, it's not the space itself. The space was amazing. Um, I think even our menu was amazing. And then we just had a little bit of um, creative differences with um, one of the partners um, in it. And um, ultimately you need to be able to make adjustments quickly. And we weren't able to make adjustments quick enough. Um, And I think we were underfunded. Like we underestimated um, the amount of money that we'd need if it wasn't gonna be a hit. So I think we had reasonable success early, but you know, getting through the winter um, and we were also, you know, we had just opened Big Wheel Burger. We had just moved Zambri's a year and a half too. So timing wasn't good. So that was one of those, those moves that if we made it now would be way different than when we made it then. And um, I think, you know, we just bit off more than we could chew. Um, and again, analyzing risk. So, um, but the other thing about it is one of the reasons why I did it, and this is comes to how I do business is we hired, um, uh, a chef to come work with us at Zambri's. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to do his own restaurant. So I told him when he came over that I would help him open a restaurant. 
and that was the guild. So I, he came to me, you know, in, I guess it, we opened it in 2013. He came to me and said in 2012 and said, I'm ready. I'm ready for the opportunity. I've got a business plan. And he had a really good business plan. The menu was great. Um, so I wanted to live up to that commitment I made to him. And, you know, looking back on it, I probably would have said timing isn't great for our group. Um, even though this opportunity looked good, um, the bigger, you know, with all the other stuff we had going on, it was probably too much at that time and might have had a different outcome if it was two years later. Got it. Got it. And something else that you said uh, that I think is is really important, particularly on this podcast, is you have to know what your your marketing draw is, your your call to action. And I thought it'd be really useful for the audience if, by way of example, you could share with us what that call to action is for Big Wheel Burger. The call to action is basically community. And in that community, you know, you've got the environment, you've got your staff, you've got your customers, you've got your suppliers. So for us, we decided to lean into, you know, giving as much back as possible, um, but also building a business, our business model on, we started with the environment. We started with making sure that we were paying our employees you know, better than minimum wage and working towards a program where we could actually have restaurant workers making a living wage. Um, and then just challenging ourselves to see if we could put a business plan together to achieve that. Um, and that's been, you know, probably one of our best decisions in that is just looking differently at business. And instead of going, you know, how much money we can make or, you know, what kind of novelty we can do, just really try to be integral in our intent and um, so that, I mean, customers are smart. They're going to sniff out if you're being, you know, insincere and, you know, you aren't really living up to what you're saying you are. Mm-hmm. So I think the key for us was just doing things subtly so that people could kind of scratch the surface and start asking questions about different things we were doing rather than hitting the head over the head with it. Um, and that's really allowed us to do a bunch of things that, uh, are really good for our business, but really good for the community. Um, we built a community garden. Um, we started a, a big wheel community foundation. Um, this year alone, we donated over 150 grand to the community. Um, and we're in a position that we're able to um, leverage, you know, that and our customers get what kind of business we are. So there's some people that don't agree. We chart, we, we're going to be removing our autograt, but we started an auto gratuity um, at the beginning of COVID just to make sure that our employees were going to be able to earn enough. Um, and we talked to our employees about that. And because we were setting what that, that gratuity was going to be, we asked if they would be willing to donate to our foundation, which we would match. And they agreed. So it's been a win-win because, you know, they've gotten uh, stability in their wages. Um, we're able to raise a ton of money for the community and the business is still profitable. So, um, I think people's approach, um, they can learn a lot and our marketing dollars are very low. I mean, most, most restaurants, um, in our category would be spending, you know, five to 8% of their revenue on, on marketing and advertising. We we're at about two or 3%, but we spend a ton of money on, on community giving, which, um, is basically our marketing budget. Um, so there's really, you know, from just the pure business end of it, you know, the community work I do is what gets me up in the day, like gives me the biggest satisfaction. Um, the byproduct is that I have a successful business. So I think b- looking at it the other way, business people would be like, I want a thriving business and then maybe I'm going to give back. But 
if you reverse it, you get so much more enjoyment and you still have all the successes. So I am like, why isn't more businesses doing this? Oh, totally. And I mean, I think that one of the 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 most effective cures for depression is to uh, is to get outside of your own head and, and give something to other people. Um, 100%. And this uh this really reminds me of um, this kind kind of nerdy, but uh, but Jim Collins in his book uh, Good to Great, he has this concept called the hedgehog concept, and it's where like you know, so there are like the fox is always trying to be strategic and like you know like outmaneuver the hedgehog, but the hedgehog like just has his one move where he just like rolls up into a ball and like the, he wins every single time. And it's kind of like your hedgehog concept is community. And so yeah. that's the lens through which you look at everything, um, which, and it's just so, it's so simple too, um, and kind of counterintuitive. So I think that's a, I feel like that's a great uh, lesson. Um, yeah, I think just to, to add on that point, the counterintuitive nature, I think that's where people get tripped up is, you know, it's not instinctual to do what we're doing, but you know, having that and the comparison with the hedgehog concept is totally real because it's really easy once you pick this path mm-hmm. because every decision you make is in the lens of, of supporting a community. So it's, you know, if anybody says, well, what we should do, what should we do? My answer is, well, let's just do the right thing. You know, what did we do last time? Well, let's just do that. And if it's always about looking to give, that's where we lean into. And those decisions become very easy and when you see the outcome of those decisions and the community support you get um, and the change in the community that you're able to make and, and it's really like it's, it's, it's life-changing, life-affirming, but also it's a really good business strategy. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, uh, I, I don't doubt it. Not a lot of people can say this. You've done both the, the franchise model and you also have a single location restaurant, both of which are you know, going concerns. And so I'm curious, is one or the other uh, a clear winner? Is it not that simple? Do you have to go single location first and then franchise? What what would you say about that? Uh, I think, yeah, both businesses are very different. Um, it's almost like we own, we're in the exact same industry and we're serving food, but the big wheel burger concept, quick service restaurant is far simpler uh, to make money in. Um, there's less moving parts. Um, customers are, there's, they're still finicky and they, you know, you got to still produce a good product, but, um, in the full service Zambri's is there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. Um, it's far more costly to build, um, and start, um, and harder to duplicate. Um, I think Zambri's has been around 21 years because we have, um, you know, a bit of a unique flavor um not just food flavor but culture there and um joe and peter are sort of the heartbeats of that but as they're getting older and we're expanding to different areas they're not there as much but i think our customers appreciate what we do could you duplicate that that's that's the thing is sir not every model is duplicatable Mm -hmm. and i think we built um big wheel with a purpose so the other thing is like build your model with a purpose so if you're, you know, if you have a successful restaurant, doesn't mean that can translate into a second or third or fourth, especially if you haven't built it with the with the purpose of doing that. So we designed Big Wheel from the get go to be an arm's length business that um, could be ran by our manager at our first store and then can be just duplicated. So mm-hmm. we everything we did with it was with the idea of of that vision of having multiple units. 
Um, and, you know, our overall organizational structure was structured that way. Everything was done with that in mind. Um, and I think that's why, you know, certain businesses, if you don't do that right from the beginning and have that in your business plan, then um, it's going to be a lot harder. Totally. Um, and the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm very eager to get into is, um, you, you know, I've, I've never, I've never played poker really. Um, but my hunch is that it's an amazing, Let's play. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can teach me. I can't imagine a better teacher, but, but my hunch is that, you know, overall it's an amazing education. You know, for example, I'm sure you get really good at reading people, which is obviously uh, a really valuable life skill. Yeah. So, um, I would love it if you could share one or two of the top lessons you've learned at the poker table uh, that you've been able to apply in your life, business, or otherwise? The biggest is the decision-making with limited information. Um, so that ties into the, the reading people because that's how you get some of your information. Um, understanding the percentages and odds of certain outcomes, like certain hands play against a range of, of other outcomes. So I guess that analyzing, okay, here's what I have. And here's what's happening. You know, people are raising or betting or they're doing something. So they're telling a story. So how am I interpreting that story and how does it impact the decisions I make on my hand? So I'll first thing I'll look at is, okay, what's the strength of my hand? How does it compare against all the other possible hands that they could have? And then what hands do they have? Like, what is their range of hands? Is it 10 jack, ace king, ace queen, pocket threes, pocket fives? Like they can have all those possibilities, but do they have seven deuce? No. Okay. I can rule seven deuce out. So you can start eliminating information. And then as the betting unfolds, you gain more information. The flop comes out, you know, my hand doesn't link to it, but maybe their hand doesn't link to it. And then you start eliminating and eventually you get down to probably one or two possibilities of hands they have at the end. Mm -hmm. And the other one's just a complete bluff. So, you know, you can kind of just make that decision-making process. And I think that is the single biggest transferable thing I've learned from the game is, is how I process information and how I make decisions because I'll make decisions with probabilities um, of outcomes based on ranges instead of being very, you know, static, like all or nothing. Like that guy has this. Well, I don't know if he has that, but, you know, based on what I think his range is, here's the range of outcomes that'll come. And then, you know, figure out how, you know, my decision or my hand plays that way. You know, what is the outcome? So a lot of times I go, you can just hit a huge hand and you go, okay, there's nothing that can beat me. So how do I tell a story so I can get more, extract more money from him um, so that he doesn't know how strong my hand is. And then all of a sudden another card comes out and then my hand's no longer the best. So is, is that going to affect based on my, his, my idea of what his range of hands are. So that, that one, I guess a little bit, you know, complicated, but simple when it comes to processing information, making decisions based on a range of outcomes, but also a range of options that they have. And I think that is super important when you're making business decisions, because everybody will have an intent. Everybody will be trying to tell their story, but how does their story affect your decision-making? And, you know, how do your actions affect what they do, mm -hmm. right? Because, the, you know, you're going to have a reaction that's going to affect them. So that whole, you know, and it's annoying for my partner and, you know, some business people that I'm with because I do this process where I'm just like, okay, well, what is the range of, of things here? What is the possibilities? Like why they're asking us, they want us to do this. What is their experience? Mm -hmm. 
how's it going to impact how we do business? Are we going to be able to do business with them? And, you know, just sort of evaluate. I use the exact same process almost in every decision. Some decisions are easier than others, but I always weigh what the possibilities of the outcomes are um, because we are not in, you know, a zero sum game. There's, there's not winners and losers. There's partial versions of each. Right. So <laughs> I know I love that. And I, I think it, I think it is very, uh, applicable and it's, it's simple to do you, um, you know, like you said, you, you look at your range of possibilities. I, I think that that in and of itself is something most people just don't do. You know, they think like, it's just, I think they do it in certain ways, but they don't, they, again, doing it with purpose, like understanding the thought process that goes into your decisions you make and what you should be evaluating. And what does that even mean? You know, like understanding the structure of the decision-making process is super important so that you can repeat it. And then, it, then the more you do it, it just becomes second, second nature. Um, and I think that is the benefit of it is like, I've been doing this now like 17 years um, and to a fairly decent success for a guy who also runs companies and stuff. So I think I've done it well, but I, think that that sort of process, understanding the decision-making process is, is the most transferable to business. Um, the other thing you asked for two is risk management, like understanding when you push your edges and, and how much, like a lot of times in poker, you've got your chips. And if I've got a big stack of chips and I'm doing really well based on the average. So mm -hmm. if the average chips that everybody has is 50,000 chips and I have a hundred thousand chips, well, I will take a lot of risk with 25% of those chips, a lot, mm -hmm. because that's where I'm going to get to two or 300,000, right? But I'm only going to lose 25% and I'm still going to be above the average. So if I'm, if I am half the average, then I, I have no risk money. Like I can't take risks. I have to be very conservative, play by the book um, and be pretty ABC. So understanding what your current environment is, like how much money do you have in the bank? You know, what is your next month's or next year's sales look like? You know, what's coming down the pipe? Is there something in the industry that's going to change the outcome or something in the consumer market that's going to change your the popularity of your product? Like understanding where you're at, because that's the guild example. Like I had all, I had half the ch average chips in play and I was opening a new restaurant. Even that restaurant looked cheap. I looked like I could just take a little stab at it and be successful. Um it wasn't. And I think, you know, the poker component of it, um, I should have evaluated that a little bit more, but I do now. You know. <laughs> for, for sure. Um, okay. Well, I want to be respectful of your time here. I do have just a, a couple more, uh, yeah, no um, problem. Qu questions. Um, so, you know, uh, the guest getter. This is all about the business of restaurants with a with a heavy emphasis on on marketing. We're we're getting guests here, right? So yeah. I have a I have a two part question for you, um, and I'll ask just one at a time. So, what has been your biggest learning or biggest win when it comes to marketing your establishments? Uh, I think the biggest win. Like from a, a tangible thing, the biggest thing, the best decision we made from a marketing perspective was um, doing our climate action and becoming a carbon neutral restaurant because that created a lot of buzz and it created a lot of editorial buzz that you don't pay for. Yep. So, and being, finding a unique niche that is, it sets you above the crowd. Um, and the risk component of it is it could have backfired, you know, it could have been a really cost, you know, 
um, prohibitive enterprise. But as we learned through the process, and we had no idea when we started, um, I thought it was just a cool idea. Um, it's really worked out. So that from, you know, we really lean into that theory when we're talking about marketing is, you know, what kind of story does it tell? And what does it say? Um, and I think that speaks to our foundation work too. So before we go into community, um, we'll find out all the charities that are in that community that we can support that fit our philosophy and start donating to them ahead of time, right? So we create a lot of buzz uh, around that. So um, we also create some relationships. So they all have you know volunteers and paid people that work with them and they start hearing about our product. They start talking about it um, and we're actually putting our best foot forward in the community um, as far as what we're going to do. Obviously when they try us the food, I think our food is fantastic. Um, and we, we always make that a priority, but um, the charity component of it. Um, so those are two things that we've done. And they're very similar, like mm -hmm. the, you know, going from supporting the community or sorry, supporting the environment, which is a community initiative yeah. to supporting the community with fundraising. Um, there is always the same you know, you don't have to pivot that much for that. Um, but the, from the marketing standpoint is we wrap ourselves in that and use that to promote ourselves, um, which, you know, basically gets three times the return than if we just, you know, put a dollar in an ad or, you know, mm -hmm. and we do some of that as well too, but um, it's mostly done through that. So I think our biggest success and the biggest impact we've had is, is those decisions. Um, leaning less on traditional marketing avenues and looking looking for what the community needs and how we can, you know, be a partner in that and an advocate. And um, I always usually partner with things that I do um, because I think there's strength in that. And, you know, I get to do more things with less time. So, um, and luckily I've been really fortunate to, you know, find fantastic partners and also really good um, managers um, and coworkers that, that embrace what we're doing. Um, so they're very productive and, and they're, they're very talented at what they do. So obviously the team around me, it makes the, all of the success, but um, yeah, that's, that's our main marketing angle. And obviously, you know, the imagery and the branding and, and that kind of stuff. And um, you know, telling a story, I think for us in the burger business, all these other new restaurants are coming out. I mean, you think of McDonald's, I mean, you know, Hamburglar, you know, all those characters they built, there's a story that's big, that's outside of the actual business. Yeah. And I think one of that is, you know, the call to action and giving them a reason to support you that it just isn't about buying a burger, mm -hmm. right? Like, especially, you know, the kids, like they, I remember the day we opened or we didn't even open, we weren't there. We just put up our sign in Cook Street Village and these kids just came around. There was like seven of them that just came running up and looking and they're just like, when are you opening? And they didn't even know what business it was. They just saw the face and, you know, I assume they, it was probably, they knew it was a burger joint, but it was the face and the character that brought them in. And, you know, once you, you get them, then start telling your story and then they start telling your story to others. And, you know, that's how marketing really should work is, you know, getting that buy-in and, and, you know, having others tell your story. I mean, no one wants to hear me tell it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it, it really sounds like you're, you know, you were able to generate like a, a public relations flywheel, you know, it just, yes. because pe people want to share it. So um, it's like, you know, building that inner remarkability into your brand, which yeah. is also a, a very fun brand. So it doesn't surprise me that, that the children were out there and uh, very excited. 
Um, well, and the thing with that too is it's again going back to being with doing it with integrity, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't think anybody ever like I believe this with my heart. Mm-hmm. Like even when I talk about the ben- the marketing benefits and the business benefits of what we're doing, I kind of like oh, should I even talk about that? But I talk about it because I want to encourage other businesses to follow this business model. Yeah. But I you have to believe it. Like you can't just fake it. You know, so having that, you know, authenticity, I think, is what really sells it. Um, And then that's where you can really get the benefit. Right. Yeah. And it's it's like a gospel. Right. You know, you like you you are the Kool-Aid. Exactly. Um, And my my so my second the second part of my question here is what what do you what do you think most restaurants tend to miss when it comes to marketing themselves? I think they assume uh, they assume too little. Like I think they they think that um, if they just do a good product and have good service, that's that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a competitive landscape, you you have to be looking at those intangibles. You have to really think of okay, okay, well, how can I get a customer to really want to come and support? Um, I know when we first opened Zambri's, like that relationship with Joe and Peter and that camaraderie, and it was like you're going to. Uh, uh, an old friend's place for dinner and there was, and you got yelled at sometimes and there was all those little idiosyncrasies that build the culture. I think that was part of it. Um, Cause we didn't do a lot of these initiatives with Zambri's, but we had that sort of family feel. So give them a, uh, a reason to go there. That's just not about the food. So people would come there for the conversation and, you know, Joe's very smart and she's, she's, you know, super interesting to talk to. And Peter's got a wild personality and he's crazy. And, and so there was a lot of reasons to go and see them. So, you know, again, we didn't do a lot of marketing in that business. So again, the food was good. You got to do a good product, but you got to give them something else to go. Right. So you can't just, you know, you can't just make it if you just have a really good pizza. Like you have to have the intangibles. Yeah. You got to have a cast of characters. Yeah. And you can't just, you can't just put a sign on the bus or like, you can just waste so much money doing that. You have to really start with your, your customer and the community that's around you and see, Hey, how can I stick out? Like, how can I, you know, do something that's going to be interesting and create the talk? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you got to, you have to architect that story and you have to, you have to, you know, tell it in a way that resonates. And then, you know, once, once you have something that's working, then maybe you can, you can add fuel to the fire and, um, you know, whether it's advertising dollars or whatever. Yeah. And that, that would, does come. Um, mm-hmm. and again, going back to the poker analogy and it's like, no one's going to, you're, no one's going to believe you if you don't tell the story correctly. Mm-hmm. So you could start a hand where you're not intending to bluff, but before you know it, you need to bluff to win the hand but your story has to make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So if people don't believe you, they're going to call you on your bluff and then they're going to go, I'm not going to support them because I don't believe what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So that's why doing things with purpose and, and really figuring out what your secret sauce is going to be. That's not just your secret sauce in the food, but what is the other intangibles? Because that's a story you got to start telling early mm-hmm. so that people don't just see through you and go, oh, these guys are so full of it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. A lot um, of analogies in poker and business. <laughs> and marketing. Yeah, I love it. Um, Kaylin, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Um, I would just love it if you could share um, one parting piece of advice that you would like to offer 
all restaurant owners or managers who right now are rolling with the punches and trying to succeed in this uh, tricky time? The biggest advice I would say is don't do anything grand. Um, keep it simple. Um, we're obviously in a very difficult part right now. Um, do a lot of um, critical analysis of decisions that you maybe have made previously, making sure that your, your financials are in order. And don't be afraid to take, take a shot at increasing your prices or realizing that the customer would probably be prepared to spend a little bit more because ultimately you always put your profits at the back of the line, but it doesn't serve your business well. And it definitely doesn't serve your business well in this environment because you actually need to charge what you need to charge in order to, you know, pay yourself, pay your employees correctly. And the community will support that. So, but I think the biggest thing is just don't do anything drastic. Just try to stick it out. We're, we're probably, in my estimation, you know, four to six months away from being back mostly to normal. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that the, the, this isn't short. I also think that the worst is in front of us, unfortunately, but it'll be for a shorter period of time. So we've just gone through a whole year and a bit. Um, I think we're going to be in for another six months and the next two to three will be very tough, but just make it to the other side. We're going to be in the roaring twenties. It's going to, it's going to be busier than ever. So just be there when it happens. That's exactly what I've been saying. I think we're in for roaring twenties as well. Um, Kalen, I think those are phenomenal parting words. Uh, is there anywhere you would like our audience to, to go to learn about Big Wheel Burger or Kalen or anything? hundred percent. We, you can go to our website to learn about what we do, all of our initiatives. Uh, we talk about our community foundation and our environmental work. Um, the other thing you can go look at is bread and butter collective. So we started a, a restaurant and hospitality industry support group awesome. um, where we basically share all of our information. So um, if you're looking to start a new restaurant, um, join our group, you have access to business plans, um, access to people like me who have experience. Um, you can bounce stuff off um, POS systems and marketing ideas. We share it all. So, and that's breadandbuttercollective.com, um, which goes into all of the stuff that we do. And there's all of our member restaurants are on there and um, they're all local and independent. Um, and it's been really, it's been fantastic for me. So I know people view me as, as a leader in this industry. There's a many people that have a ton of knowledge and I've learned a lot with that group. So it's it bodes well for the future of the restaurant industry in our town um, that we are working together because it's going to be really important that not only customers support our businesses, but that we support each other um, for us to have a diverse, um, unique product offering here and not just be, you know, cookie cutter um, restaurants. And they have their place too, of course. Um, they employ a lot of people, but we want local, unique um, products, um, just as quality of life. So um, we're working together to do that. So just as much as the customers are supporting us and we appreciate that, we're also looking to each other and get, leaning into each other too. So that's one of our initiatives that I'm pretty proud of. That's phenomenal. Breadandbuttercollective.com. Uh, really, really finishing strong there on the uh, the community um, hedgehog concept. And uh, and yeah, and we do we do a bread and butter podcast on check every week too. So you can see that on our breadandbuttercollective.com website or Amazing. check check news, um, podcast. Amazing. So there's a lot of information, a lot of really good business information on there as well. Phenomenal. I'll, I'll be sure to subscribe and, uh, and, um, I hope, I hope the audience here does as well. 
Uh, Kalen, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate your time. It was really good being on your show. Likewise. Thanks. Cheers.